20 years ago, a major manufacturer decided to enter Formula One, and in its first year, it didn't enter a race, yet somehow it still managed to fall out with its future rivals. Formula One doesn't really do testing anymore, so the thought of a team spending a year on track away from the spotlight of racing is hard to imagine. But two decades ago, Toyota decided it would take the plunge into F1 with its own team, and the first car it produced completed more than 20,000 miles of running in 2001, but never competitively. My name is Glenn Freeman, and before we come to our guests today, including one very special guest, remember we're only a few weeks away from the end of the series when we'll take your questions on F1's V10 era from 1989 to 2005. So remember to submit those questions on Twitter using the hashtag BringBackV10s, or leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform and throw a question in that way. But let's get on with today's episode and to kick things off, looking back at Toyota's first steps into Formula One, I'm delighted to say we are joined by a man who was there at the centre of everything going on around this time, the one and only Alan McNish. Alan, welcome. Hey, Glenn. Thank you very much. Hope you're all well. Yeah, very well, thanks. Good to see you and good to catch up. And as you're the special guest, you can take on our opening question first, which in every episode is quite simply... When you think of what we're talking about today, so in this case, Toyota in 2001, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? First thing is opportunity. And I suppose the second thing is missed opportunity. And uh, that was for myself, but also I think as a team as well, um, because clearly, you know, a great opportunity going into Formula One from the team perspective myself and missed opportunity because the results at the end weren't where everybody hoped it would be. Sam Smith's also here and I'm going to have to do my best to stop this turning into a Formula E podcast because Alan, as I'm sure you all know, runs the <laughs> Audi team and Sam is our Formula E correspondent here at the race. So Sam, I'm afraid there's no electric motors in sight here, but what do you first think of when you look back to Toyota's year of testing in 2001? Actually, I've got a bit of a pre-memory, which is I've been at the 1999 Le Mans 24 hours and been massively impressed at, at what Toyota had there. Arguably, they, they should have won that race, and so we're pretty unlucky not to do so. But but just looking actually at the, the test car, the TF101, I recall thinking, hmm, it's, it's a bit basic. It, it, it almost looked like a bit of a Formula 3000 Lola, obligatory Lola reference there. Um, but I think it initially got the benefit of the doubt because it was conceived to serve a purpose, which was to get thrashed around the circuits of the world and, and to collect data. I also remember thinking at the time how exciting it was to have a genuine newcomer to F1 and, and one that was using the, the Ferrari model of building everything from the ground up. So it kind of felt like, I suppose, a, a new era in F1 in a way. BAR had come in a few a few years before and, and there seemed to be a new stories to tell in F1 after years of Williams and McLaren domination. So, uh, of course, the reality was that it was actually just entering another uh, epoch of domination with Ferrari, who moved not only the goalposts, but the whole playing field with it. So, But it, it, I just remember it as being exciting that such a massive name was coming into F1. Yeah, and I think we'll find out from Alan in a bit if that car was actually any good. But through the year, Toyota tested at 11 F1 circuits and its test team base at Paul Ricard, completing more than 3,000 laps during the year with Alan and Mika Salo behind the wheel. But it could have been also different. Toyota initially planned to enter F1 in 2001 and put down a £30 million deposit 
to claim the 12th slot on the grid, but it wanted to come in with a V12 engine, and in early 2000, the FIA outlawed V12s, mandating that all engines should be glorious V10s. While that decision obviously sits very well with us here at Bring Back V10s, it didn't go down very well with Toyota. In the summer of 2000, a Toyota spokesman said, we find it hard not to blame the FIA, adding that the application of the ruling has changed the team's plans and our focus has to turn to working on a 10-cylinder engine. Delaying its appearance by a year cost Toyota its £30 million deposit and it had to pay a penalty of another £8 million for not taking up its slot as promised. Now, Alan, according to my research from the time, you signed your test driver deal around April of 2000. So how aware were you uh, in the early months of what had gone on with Toyota's V12 plans? Well, to be honest, first of all, um, I actually like V12s. I've got to say that. And, uh, you know, they were still screaming, not in the same way as V10s were, but uh, they were really nice beasts. The situation was, from my personal perspective, was I raced for them at that Le Mans that Sam was talking about, but I was contracted to Porsche at the time. So I was only effectively on loan because Porsche weren't racing. And at the end of the year, I was sort of, because it was a one race deal for me doing Le Mans. And at the end of the year, I was actually signing to go to Audi, where I spent the majority of my racing career. And I got a telephone call from Ovi Anderson. He says, um, you know, we're doing Formula One. Yeah, okay. But it was never on my radar at all. Do you want to come in and have a discussion? So I went in and had a discussion. So the time period when they were discussing all the V12 or V10 side was really actually before me. And uh, so when I came, it was quite clear when the entry was and also the timeline and the planning of a test year. It was going to be a test car. And then you were going to build up through the test program into racing in 2002. Um, but clearly from the company point of view, going so far down the road with a V12, which I think was in their heart of hearts. In, uh, you know, it was something that was probably linked to Ferrari. Ferrari were a V12 and Toyota, the biggest car manufacturer in the world by volume of sales by profitability and everything else at the time um, were coming in at the levels of Ferrari in their eyes and that was part of it but uh, ultimately it uh, wasn't to be and it was going to have two cylinders whacked off and it was a V10. Yeah I think there'll be a few more Ferrari comparisons before the end of the episode but Sam what did you make of all this do you think Toyota was stitched up? Well it looks that way doesn't it on, on paper uh, but actually V12s they'd had a death sentence in effect for years after Ferrari went to V10s in 96. So there was something of an inevitability about it as the FIA wanted to reduce power outputs for years anyway and was looking at furthering road relevance and, and other strategies going forward into the 21st century. My opinion is that Toyota should have perhaps seen that decision coming maybe a little more. Um, I don't think it was a massive surprise to those already in Formula One. I'm not entirely sure, I mean, maybe Alan can, can answer this, why they initially pursued the V12 route anyway. I mean, the, the GT1 car was was a V8. And I actually, yeah, I, I struggle to think of any Toyota heritage with a V12. I mean, you know, there was there's some limousines in in Tokyo, I think, that have had V12 uh, engines. But <laughs> what was the what was the reasoning? Do you think, Alan, on that one? To be honest, I, I don't actually have a definitive reason um, for you. All I can say is it was a bloody expensive development of an engine that never ran because it cost them thirty eight million. 
And if you think about it in today's terms, a company joining Formula One paying 38 million not to compete, it's just insanity in today's world. But in that time, it wasn't actually insanity because uh, the registration process, if I remember, was you had to deposit 50 million um, so that they had the, I would say the, uh, the teams that were coming in were actually real structured and financial teams, of which Toyota clearly was. But uh, the actual definite reasons behind V12, not really sure. But the V10 was, wasn't too bad. Yeah, I think there was like a bond or something that teams had to put up to show they were serious, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, it's $50 million. Yeah. So Alan is on Toyota's books with the hope of landing a race drive. And in the summer, word gets out that Toyota is close to signing a deal with Salo despite him having a contract with Sauber for 2001. Salo's Sauber contract did have a get-out clause that if the team was outside the top six in the Constructors' Championship after the Hungarian Grand Prix, uh, he could leave, and at that stage, they were seventh. Toyota signs Salo and announces all of its plans formally at the Belgian Grand Prix. Salo has a three-year deal to cover testing in 2001, racing in 02 and 03, and a likely role with the company when he retires from driving. At the time, Salo says, it's clear that Toyota is the future of F1. I know it will be hard work, there will be a lot of disappointments in the beginning, and it will be difficult testing and not racing, but I'm tired of fighting for 6th, 7th and 8th places. I want the chance to win. Sauber, of course, went on to have its best season in F1 in 2001, finishing 4th in the Constructors' Championship, but I think it's fair to say that Salo couldn't have been expected to predict that. But Sam, if you were Mikasalo in the middle of 2000 and you had a choice of staying at Sauber or taking a test year with Toyota as part of what was supposed to be a long-term deal, which one do you take? Well, I mean, yeah, you're right. Let's get the hindsight out of the way. I mean, it's not really con uh, conducive to this at this time. But, you know, Mika took the decision because I'm, I'm sure he felt there were probably very slim pickings with a C19 Sauber in in 2000 um he'd had he'd had that fifth place at monaco um in his in his season in 2000 anyway sauber didn't appear to have much to offer for that season and and if you know if in terms of uh, building something which in his eyes was going to be good for his future. Not many drivers went to Sauber to, to achieve that. Um, he was confident of his deal, however misguided that might be with a bit of hindsight because obviously he got he got dropped at the end of that, that first season. Now, with, with a sprinkling of hindsight, there is an argument to state that he should have stayed at Sauber. Had he done so, not only would he have, I'm sure, done great justice to what was a pretty malleable C20 Sauber, he may have actually contributed more than Heidfeld and Reichardt did with his experience and his and his speed and actually his inherent capability of getting extracting a lot from a, um, a you know a car that's a midfield car potentially. But then again, Mika plainly wanted much more from his career at that stage. He'd beaten Hackenden on many occasions in F3. He'd done well in Nippon. He could ring results from average cars such as Tyrrells and, and Arrow designs, as we'd seen. When he got his hands on a top car briefly in '99, as Schumacher's replacement, he had to be a bit of a um, bit of a patsy, for another word, to, to Irvine. Of all people, Eddie Irvine, someone he knew he could generally get the better of from his Nippon days as well. In his head, I think he. He felt he was owed another proper crack at the sharp end, but he wasn't going to get that at Ferrari, plainly. And in Toyota, he believed that this was a chance. So actually, there's little wonder that he, he took 
he, he went down the avenue that he went to at that stage of his career. Yeah, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that if you're offered a longer stint at Sauber or the chance to be part of this Toyota project with all the money that Toyota were spending and the resources going behind it, I think it, it looked like the right decision at the time. Toyota announces that Alan is on a two-year deal, but it's not yet decided if you'll get a race seat. And Alan, this is what you said at the time. You said, Toyota has given me the chance and it is up to me to take it. I can compare myself with an established F1 driver and that is the reason for taking the job. It's not like Toyota and no hopers who are always going to be at the back. These guys have got the commitment, the desire and the support to do it. So Alan, have we represented you fairly there from 20 years ago? <laughs> it's 20 years ago. Crikey me. Um, yeah, look, at the end, I had tested and been reserved with Benetton and McLaren and uh, also, you know, done a lot of test kilometres. I was established in sports cars. And like I said, after the end of uh, 1999 and the Le Mans programme, I'd already joined Audi. But at the same time, I had actually got the the testing. It was a three-year contract, as it turned out. And it was for 2000, 2001 and 2002. And there was always the caveat that, uh, you know, delivering the test programme and the seats there. So for me, it was something that I'd been looking at, as in Formula One, from when I was a little kid in one way or another, even although I wasn't necessarily focused on wanting to be a racing driver. And at the same time, I had a very strong and established sports car career. And I, I looked at it and thought, right, well, you know, if you're going to have a crack at it, you're going to have to do it now. And this is an opportunity. It's with an organization. I don't think anybody thought that it would they would struggle quite so much as what they did. Um, and there's plenty of reasons behind that. And uh, certainly, I didn't believe it would be such a struggle as well. Um, however, looking back, it made me a much better driver. It made me a much stronger character, I would have said. And uh, Mika, I have to say, was a fantastic teammate. You know, he was entertaining. I knew him from Formula 3 and, you know, Formula 3000 anyway. And he was a benchmark because he had been able to deliver. And I kind of agree with your synopsis from his perspective as well. He was looking to advance his career and it was a case of this had an opportunity for the future as opposed to being a reference of where he was at the time. And so ultimately, all in all, um, you know, we were in at the early part, which had very, I would say, very little experience in the whole system of it all. And uh, it was a developing process as it went on. But, uh, you know, it was definitely... It's not in an easy arena, should we put it that way? And I found it out quickly. Yeah, and as you say, you'd been around F1 teams and done some F1 mileage by then. Sam and I were on an episode a few weeks ago where we talked about um, testing before the French Grand Prix in 1990. And Sam and I noted in the, in the research we did for that that you were actually running McLaren's new V12 engine of that test. So that's, that's why I like V12s. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I like V12s. <laughs> yeah, no, I did a lot of running in the 90s developing that V12, actually, mostly in Suzuka, um, because that was Honda's test track. And I uh, did a lot of, well, 40 or 50 odd days with Benetton afterwards. So I had a lot of mileage underneath my belt. But the one thing you want to do is, you know, a test driver is like being a bridesmaid. And uh, you can ask any woman, they never want to be the bridesmaid. They always want to be the bride. And racing drivers are the same deal. Yeah, well put. That's excellent, I think. Now, uh, team boss Uwe Anderson, who'd overseen Toyota's exploits in rallying and sports cars already up to this point, was playing down expectations from the off. He said, 
Toyota is realistic. They've had a long struggle in kart to win races, so they understand you don't go in there and win. They know it will take a few years to get the success that we want. So Sam, was this all quite sensible from Toyota at this point? Sensible expectations and a sensible driver lineup coming together? Expectations wise, yes, I think it was sensible. They'd probably seen and heard like we all had uh, the likes of Craig Pollock and Adrian Reynard, what they were saying about BAR's chances um, and, and maybe cringed a little. It's it's not the Japanese way to make bold and bolshy predictions of that ilk. And of course, Ove Anderson knew the culture very well, having worked with Toyota for so long in rallying and in sports cars. Drivers-wise, it made perfect sense to go with uh, Alan and, and Mika. And the only surprise was that Alan wasn't confirmed sooner, but perhaps there was a tactic behind that we don't really know alan probably does i'm not sure but if there was it was never articulated really and it was probably maybe a little bit misguided i i didn't know alan particularly at that stage of his career but i'd seen him racing in all of the categories up until that point he was clearly an excellent team player and someone who brought a lot technically and, and sportingly to a major operation so why let him dangle like that for the whole summer seemed a bit unnecessarily cruel to me, it's it. You know, I think uh, slightly maybe endemic of perhaps a, an overly complex management of some description at that stage in in the program. But uh, yeah, maybe Alan can uh, enlighten us as to why he didn't he didn't get uh, confirmed sooner. Uh, I was, I think, to some extent, I can understand it probably a little bit more now with my team boss hat on. Actually, that uh, it's always good to keep people focused on the job and not sit back and relax and I think drivers you know some drivers react to that some don't in general uh, the actual point was very clear Ovi for me was fantastic he was an excellent boss in uh, so many ways he was there to sort of nudge you on the back and he was there to sort of put his arm around the shoulder at different times I don't necessarily think everybody within the structure was quite as uh, experienced or as good in all honesty um, but it was I remember I was testing in my new cooler actually and uh, I'd done the morning and we had switched to something else and I was standing outside the car and Ovi phoned and he just he just said in a typical sort of Ovi way you know you're racing next year you've got the seat and I went well no actually Ovi I never kind of said it before and he said well yeah yeah it's all sorted out don't worry don't worry and that was kind of it and uh, so it was actually earlier than when they announced it. That was clearly significantly later on. Um, but it was still at the point, which I think is a fair point, is they wanted to see me in the car um, because it had been six, seven years since I had driven a Formula One car um, before they actually would, uh, you know, commit one completely to it. Well, that saved us some time later on because, uh, yeah, there's all kinds of mixed reports about when Alan's deal was done. But now, now we know, so we'll brush past that part later on. But Toyota launches its test car in March of 2001 with Bernie Eccleston and Max Mosley in attendance, which I think tells you all you need to know about how seriously F1 was taking Toyota. Uh, Alan isn't confirmed at this point, as we've just discussed, but Anderson said at this launch that Alan had a serious chance to race next year. We have no other plans unless something goes wrong. He's first on the list. There was more playing down of expectations here. Anderson says a big checkbook alone does not win races. There were recent examples of that, which as Sam just referenced, I think is perhaps a dig maybe at BAR and possibly Jaguar, who are also uh, doing a bad job with a lot of money 
around that time. And we're allowed to say that because we're on side with Gary Anderson here at the race. Uh, but Anderson also says being an engine supplier to a famous team is not thought to give the right return on investment and therefore the car would not be a Toyota. Mosley picks up on the thing that we mentioned earlier of Toyota doing a Ferrari and building its own car and engine. Max says it's an extraordinary achievement and shows their self-confidence that in the full glare of the public, they have decided to go into one of the most demanding sports. That is very courageous. It's a high-risk project, but the company have thought about it and researched the value of Formula One as a technical and a marketing exercise. Now, as we covered earlier in this series, this wasn't long after Toyota's big rival Honda had briefly considered setting up its own team, running a full test car project in early 1999, but then deciding to choose the more gradual route into F1, pairing up with BAR as a works engine supplier for 2000. But Alan, what did you make of the way Toyota went about it? Was it right to go in with a full engine and chassis package rather than just an engine supplier? You know, your comment at the beginning, we've got to take away hindsight. And you've got to look at the facts at the time. Uh, if you are to compete at that level, then manufacturer control in every way is ideally the right way to do it. And uh, you look at as well at the time, you mentioned Sauber earlier on, BMW went in and took over Sauber and lifted its performances forward. You saw Ferrari were there and everything in, in control, which was something that Toyota were used to anyway with the rally program and with the Le Mans program. They had the dynos, they had all of the static rigs, they had the infrastructure and the facility. They already had 330 people in TMG, in Cologne anyway. And so, you know, there was question marks about should there be an engine supplier or should they actually even be in Germany at all? But with that facility and everything there anyway, it's logical to bring it in and to develop it. And so adding a wind tunnel was uh, the biggest single thing they had to do to their current infrastructure. I think looking back on it now, certainly the area wasn't necessarily do you do it under one roof that was maybe a weakness. It was do you do it from the ground up without necessarily any real depth of F1 experience in-house to do that. And uh, in my opinion, doing it in Germany definitely didn't make it easier to attract people from the sort of uh, Formula One Valley of uh, the UK. Um, but it wasn't necessarily just being based in Germany and doing the whole car that was the problem. It was the fact that the people doing it, unfortunately, at that time, did not have the experience of all of the other teams. Yeah, the subject of the Germany base does come up a few times during this year. Toyota gets straight into testing after the launch, but Salo has a massive accident at Paul Ricard and is on the sidelines for a couple of months with back pain. So that means Alan gets all the early test duties. The next big news we hear from Toyota in public comes in May when it splits with its technical boss, Andre de Cortans, restructures the team and brings in Gustav Brunner from Minardi. Anderson says these latest changes to our management give us a more solid foundation on which we can carry on building a successful new F1 race team. Do you remember much about this, Alan? And was this a case of Toyota maybe already realising that the test car wasn't any good? Well, I think uh, two points. One, the test car was there to do a job. It was to sort of learn and gather data. It was to understand what the different tracks were because we followed around the Grand Prix circus, but effectively a week behind the race. So it gave us reference points of the car on the circuit, rubbered in and, and, and. At the same time, it was to develop the team. 
and to bring the team together and to try to add all of that in. Because as I said, there was a, a team of people there and it was to try to bring a racing team together as well as a car technical team. And so I think it did its jobs in so many ways. Uh, when Andre left, I have to be honest, I wasn't expecting it at the time. Um, I understood afterwards exactly why and where and also the other people that left with him uh, who have gone on to quite high profile other things as well. And uh, But ultimately, it definitely did need people with F1 experience sitting in there. And uh, Gustav was able to bring some of that, um, maybe not necessarily at the sharp, sharp end, because he is coming from Minardi, which, OK, uh, it's, that team has ultimately just won the last Grand Prix, but in a very, very different guise to it was in the late 90s, that's for sure. Okay, now for some fun. Uh, Brunner says, I feel a little pain leaving Minardi, but that Toyota is an opportunity not to be missed. However, new Minardi owner Paul Stoddart immediately threatens legal action over the move. Stoddart said at the time, Gustav has been a trusted and highly regarded member of staff, and for him to act this way is totally incomprehensible to us. We are surprised and saddened that a company of Toyota's standing would seek to employ Mr. Brunner, who has a contract with Minardi until January the 1st, 2003. As such, European Minardi will be pursuing all of its options in law against both Mr. Brunner and Toyota. Toyota responds to that with a statement that it gives to Reuters, saying, We employed Gustav Brunner after he told us he had resigned from Minardi and he could join Toyota. We obviously have no reason not to believe this version. We are not involved at all, because if there is a problem between Minardi and Mr. Brunner, it is a problem that doesn't legally involve Toyota. We saw a copy of the contract that Mr. Brunner provided to us, and we have to say that Mr. Brunner was absolutely free to leave the company based on the information that we have. If Minardi have any more evidence, we are happy to see this. So effectively what's going on here is Toyota believes it was free to offer Brunner a job because it waited until he resigned from Minardi to approach him. Stoddart isn't impressed with that, and he says the legal action is against Brunner and Toyota, and this was the version of events he gave. He said, I got a piece of paper on Monday morning, handwritten on a bank holiday on an open fax, that, saying that he'd gone. Not I'm going, but gone. That is the first I knew of it. We intend to pursue it to the fullest extent possible. We have been wronged quite badly. As far as I'm concerned, I want retribution for two things that were very wrong. One, what was done, and most importantly, the way it was done. He also says it's not about trying to get Brunner to come back to Minardi, where in Paul's words, he had 150 friends, now he's got 150 enemies. Sam, it's obviously very hard to comment uh, on something like that without knowing the ins and outs of the contracts, but what do you think? Is this perhaps just cash-strapped Minardi looking for a payday? I mean, with respect to Gustav Brunner, who was a very decent designer with stints at Ferrari and Leighton House, of course, but at that stage of his career, he wasn't what you'd call a, a rising star or a grande designer. In fact, he probably was a bit of a journeyman at that stage of his career. So it seems to be a, a lot of handbags over an asset that perhaps might not have been worth that level of aggro. Uh, just, just an opinion. But I imagine that Stoddart was probably pretty fired up to get the most he could out of it, out of the whole situation, and probably felt personally slighted well, did 
feel personally slighted as you've uh, you've read out there, Glenn, and also perhaps maybe saw an opportunity to try and stick it to the to the bigger stuff and uh, so to the bigger fish and and all that kind of thing. Minardi was obviously hurt by this in terms of having to replace Bruno, which they did with Gabriele Tredozzi, but. I think what you have to remember here is that Stoddart had just bought the team a few months earlier. Uh, and, you know, Brunner had been there for a number of years, was well-respected at Minardi. So I reckon probably Stoddart wanted to show he and his new team couldn't be walked all over. And henceforth, we had the the legal uh, issues and, and, and Stoddy was flexing his muscles. Yeah, starting as you meant to go on, I think. Now, Alan, you you mentioned, obviously, having a designer coming in from Minardi wasn't getting someone from the sharp end of the grid. So, How did you feel at the time when you heard, OK, we're changing the design team and we're bringing in the car, the guy who's just designed the car at the back of the grid? Yeah, well, at the time, um, we were early in the testing programme. And so, therefore, the race car for 2002 hadn't really been uh, started or not to any great level if you like and uh, so from that perspective it was a bit of a whirlwind in all honesty and uh, it was interesting you going back through that whole procedure with study because I'd forgotten about it entirely I thought you were actually talking about Barcelona and Messi for a little while there and uh, it was it's quite interesting going back and remembering little bits and pieces about it but that was actually because Gustav came in and he was more straight on to what was happening in 2002. And we were still more working on what was happening in 2001, what was how we were going through the test car and then the areas that needed to be worked on and improved for a reliability, but as well as obviously performance. But where we were with performance, then we needed to make a huge step forward anyway, because uh, the test car wasn't... Um, uh, difficult for references, as I mentioned before, but it certainly wasn't uh, quick enough. Yeah, don't worry about that. I've got all the lap times and all the comparisons that you guys are making, so we'll we'll revisit those. <laughs> but uh, Toyota's about to gear up to start testing away from Paul Ricard and head into some tracks on the F1 calendar in the summer. And it's around this time that we get first word that the test car might not be very good. And as Alan outlined earlier, actually, Toyota addressed this with a simple statement saying the car is doing the job it was designed to do which is to get mileage on the board and experience for the team. But around this time, there's an interesting difference in targets from the team and Salo. Anderson gives an interview to an Italian newspaper where he says, we are confident we will be able to qualify well and finish a high number of races in our first season. The following year, we will aim to get some points. In 2004 and 5, as well as increasing our finishes in the points, we will be looking to reach the podium. And in 2006, we'll be going for the title. But Salo says in an interview around the same time, my personal aims for 2002 are a lot higher than Toyota's. Toyota believes that after three years of competitive racing, finishing in the points and occasional wins will be possible. I'm a racing driver and I need to be on top all of the time. For me, that is the only way to keep racing. To succeed is very important to motivate myself. Alan, what did you make of this at the time? Was this maybe Mika planting a little reminder to Toyota not to get too cautious with its ambitions? No, I think it was Mika just saying what was in his mind and what was in his heart. You know, it was a clear statement. You know, you you don't turn up just to be there. You turn up to to win and do the by far the best job you can. And uh, when you're joining a company like Toyota then clearly they weren't coming in just to do, you know, just to be there. And I can understand it as well. Ovi 
was clearly not trying to build it up too high externally and also internally. However, there was a, there was a lot of people involved and there was a lot of people um, maybe starting to build up expectations internally of what might be. Um, so I think there was an element of, oh, we're trying to keep a cap on the lid of this pot that could be starting to come up to simmer and boiling. Whereas Mika just says exactly, and that's the thing I love about Mika, and I love it as a, as a teammate, but also, you know, before and after, he says exactly what he thinks. Sometimes not everybody kind of likes it, I have to be honest, and sometimes it's probably got him into trouble. Um, and even at Toyota, but uh, that's the that's the chap they hired and that's the chap they got. Yeah, Mika does a bit of that throughout 2001, it must be said. But as promised, let's look at some of yeah. <laughs> let's look at some of these tests Toyota did at the F1 tracks and rattle through the numbers. They start off with an Italian double header of Imola and Monza. At Imola, Allen's best time is 5.9 seconds slower than pole for the Grand Prix earlier in the year and six tenths slower than Tarso Marquez was at the back of the grid. Toyota explains that performance by saying track conditions weren't great and the test was described as encouraging still. Salo was back for Monza and he's 5.4 seconds off pole position from the 2000 race. This time, Alan, you were quoted and you said, all times have been done with a reasonable amount of fuel and we are not in a position to gain anything from going for ultimate lap times other than a few public relations points. After an outing at... That sounds like uh, PR speak to me. Yeah, did you write that quote? <laughs> Uh, after an outing at Paul Ricard that conveniently goes much better because there's no comparable data there, Toyota's back on the F1 trail at Barcelona. Salo's best time there is 5.7 seconds off the 2001 pole and 1.4 seconds slower than our old benchmark of Tarso Marquez again in the Minardi. Uh, the Magni Cortes that Alan referenced earlier, Toyota was 6.2 seconds off the 2001 pole there, although there was mixed weather and not too much dry running. They're then 4.7 seconds off at the Nürburgring, 6.6 .6 at the Hungaro Ring, which suggests you've got a car that hasn't got much downforce, uh, 3.2 off around the short lap of the A1 Ring, 7 seconds off at Sepang, and 5.6 off at Suzuka. Now, the A1 Ring test is interesting because Toyota ran a full simulation of a Grand Prix weekend. However, both cars retired from their simulated race. Alan, you lasted 33 laps before you stopped with fuel pressure problems. So does that mean you ran out of fuel? No, no, no. It actually stopped. I remember that because uh, we did a full simulation and it was over 9-11. And uh, we came in from free practice one into the truck and uh, we had the full satellite link up back to Cologne. And it was on the news. And uh, that's when the Twin Towers... And so it's embedded very much in my memory, that particular thing. And, it, and anyway, we, we did a full FP1, FP2, FP3, then the correct time schedules to do it into qualifying a warm-up because you still had warm-ups in those days back in uh, the dinosaur era. And uh, then uh, a race. And the race, I stopped coming out of turn one. So I accelerated going up the straight up, up the hill to the hairpin and, well, didn't accelerate any longer, and that was it. So it was about halfway through the race, I think. It's about 68 or 70 laps or something normally around there. Yeah, pretty much half distance. And Salo made it to 50 laps before he retired with an exhaust issue. And in an interview with a Finnish newspaper that we'll come back to in more detail in a moment, Salo says, We know the car is overweight, and it's important first to get it reliable, then concentrate on speed. 
He also says, luckily, we can test until the end of the year, which will become a very contentious issue that we'll come back to shortly. So, Sam, some pretty horrible numbers there showing Toyota's pace relative to the teams that were racing. But did this really matter in the first year or was it purely about mileage, do you think? Well, we've talked in a previous podcast, haven't we, uh, about a similar situation with Honda's aborted factory team in 1999 and what they were appearing to do at, at their private tests and some highly irregular lap times it's the other way with with toyota wasn't it in terms of uh the the times and some of the worrying times that that, that car was was able to achieve i mean it was plainly not getting too close to even the back of the grids um at the best of times yes toyota built this car for a specific reason and actually, the man who penned it, Andrea de Cortins, was was very much, I guess, what you'd say at the end of his top line career. Um, he always had a bit of a, a reputation for being a bit quirky and uh, trying some peculiar things in his career. Uh, and, and you know, he went on to work for for Pescarolo, of course, after that. So it wasn't as if it was his last role in the industry, but. Getting back to it, the, the fact that Mikasalo was subsequently described, uh, sorry, Mikasalo subsequently descri- described the test car pretty uh, unfavorably. Uh, and recently, actually, I think in the, the F1 podcast that Tom Clarkson does, he described it as a, a donkey and a bus, um, which isn't flattering. You know, how poor it was, I think it's it's evident in terms of the weight of it. It was extremely heavy. Some say 100 kilograms um, over what the the other teams were running in terms of weight that year. Yeah, Operationally, I'm sure it was extremely uh, positive to get some of the operational elements done and dusted a year ahead of making a competitive debut. And, and there would have been a host of other things that were important. But I, I think the key issue, obviously, was the, the fact that it was it was so overweight. But but as a data collection exercise, as Alan attested, it, it did the trick. And, and, and that's about as much as you can say, I think. Yeah, did it matter to you at all, Alan? You know, I'm reading through all those times now and they don't make for great reading but when you're in the thick of it and you know you're part of a bigger project working towards 2002 were you bothered um i think it's always better if you're competitive and when you're developing and trying to understand and realize what you need when you're that far off then clearly you're not developing technology that is going to be always as relevant and certainly not your experience level your understanding you know, because it, it's when you said about my new cure, it made me wince a little bit the, the time off and also supplying it seven seconds. And, uh, you know, the difference from a driving point of view, going around the circuit suddenly seven seconds a lap faster, which is predominantly corners, because, you know, if you're aero limited, you do tend to go down the straights reasonably quick. Um, and so in that respect, it's, it's braking and, and cornering performance. And so, yes, I'm sure uh, at the time, but I, I hadn't actually remembered it so much that uh, we were so far off that you'd be sort of wondering where the reality was in terms of what was coming up next. But, you know, coming back to to the car, the car was developed, it was running, but it wasn't then developed through the course of the testing so much. It was more reliability, it wasn't a performance near didn't have aero packages coming to it and things like that to improve it. So all the energy and efforts, and especially once Gustav came, was on to what was happening in 2002. And that same procedure actually happened through 2002 where nothing really came to the car. And then 2003 was where all the big updates were. 
And uh, so from that perspective, it was kind of what it was at the beginning was what it was at the end of the year. So it's not a great surprise that, you know, the lap time relative to, you're mentioning the minority in Tarso Marquez was sort of always reasonably stable all the way through. And among the tests at F1 tracks, there was a particularly bad test at Silverstone where Toyota had to cut short its running due to a power steering problem. And uh, unsurprisingly, Salo was quick to comment about that, saying, at the moment, things are taking too long, not just with the car, but with the team. I'm 100% sure the engine is great, but we have to improve a lot in other areas. The team just want to be in the race, but I want to do well when I go racing. Bizarrely, that test is followed by an outing at Spa, where the lap times I found must have been a typo, because they claim that Toyota are only a couple of seconds off the pace. Given how long Spa is, I don't trust those numbers. Uh, Alan, apparently you're using traction control for the first time, but did, did you cut the bus stop as well? <laughs> it was it was a different circuit to what it was now. Um, you know, you've got to remember if Eau Rouge is flat, and that was at the time, probably in the test car it wasn't actually, uh, and Blanchemont, then it's effectively two big long straights with uh, certainly an you know, middle sector that's a lot of corners and you need downforce, but you don't need maximum downforce for that. You need a, a sort of quite a few sort of levels down in that respect. It's not a Budapest type of circuit. And so from that perspective, you know, it is the type of circuit where naturally you would be a little bit closer to the mark. Um, but yeah, a couple of seconds sounds pretty good. Salo then moves to clarify some of his recent misery in that Finnish newspaper interview we mentioned earlier. He says he was misunderstood, but goes on to explain that deep inside myself, I was hoping we would have made a bit more progress, but I'm not disappointed. I knew getting into this, how demanding and challenging the project would be. Setbacks will follow one another. You just have to get used to it. But Sam, you've spent a long time working on the PR side of motorsport. Do you think uh, Mika was told to go out and fix some of the damage from his previous interview? Well, knowing Mika a little bit, I'm amazed it was so relatively subtle in the first place, actually. But um, he, he's very much from the Raikkonen school of calling a spade a spade or whatever that translates in, in Finnish. Uh, and he doesn't hold back. Uh, we we, uh, we in the media love him even more so for this. He may have been told to rein it back a bit, but from his point of view, he'd been driving this car around for a while now it had broken his back in three places and then when he comes back from three months out that that you know there isn't any i suppose tangible progress or, or what he would have been expecting i'm sure so i think with that in mind the frustration is understandable but knowing toyota a bit from sports cars and how they operate they have a, a very distinct corporate um honor and pride in in everything they do they've got a, a something called a kaizen practice ethos which is basically a continuous improvement throughout all the departments and a and a philosophy um to that to that degree so outright criticism is, is never taken particularly well it, it has to be a constructive criticism um i, I could imagine ove anderson a man who will have known all about uh, about these practices and how Toyota works, having uh, a little word in Mika's ear, I think, about, about some of those comments. Let's get on to some more needle and some bigger problems, uh, perhaps for Anderson in the, in the public eye anyway, because uh, around this time he hits out at the other F1 teams in an interview with Motorsport Actuel. He says, we are not welcome in Formula One. 
None of the other teams ha uh, will have us as a member of their little club. The only ones who were positive about it were Max Mosley and Bernie Eccleston. He goes on to complain that team bosses are unavailable whenever he tries to contact them. And he criticises people who have questioned why Toyota is basing its team from Germany rather than the UK, saying it's better for testing to be on the European mainland already. He's upset by a hostile reaction he received earlier in the year at the Australian Grand Prix when he was accused of only being there to poach staff. To that, he said, why would I do it in front of everyone? It would be much cheaper to call those people rather than fly to Australia. There is no reason to be angry with us. Sam, how would you assess this? Do you think it was a, a good move from Anderson to call out his future rivals for not being very welcoming? Or did he mark himself out here as maybe not being up to the challenge of what used to be known as the Piranha Club of F1 team bosses? I think when you look back at those comments, I think Toyota should have taken the view perhaps that some of the more grandee characters in Formula One getting aerated about them and saying what they said, they should be taken with a degree of uh, flattery, I think, really. It's easy to forget that Toyota was among the top three automotive OEMs globally, uh, and, and, and still is, I believe. So I think some saw that as a long-term threat, uh, some being the other teams. Therefore, they were never going to be welcomed with open arms and Poured cups, poured cups of tea, and 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 sort of you know welcome to the club sort of thing. They had to earn their stripes as McLaren, Williams, and others had done before. The, the same had happened to Eddie Jordan in '91. Remember, which I think actually um, where that phrase was born. You know, welcome to the Piranha Club. Bar in '98, '99. There was a lot of uh, circumspection about about them. Uh, there's a lot of machismo in F1. There certainly was back then, and, and I think it showed in some of those comments and barbs. Anderson was, by all accounts, as, as Alan has said, a, a very nice, uh, wise man with lots of experience, and perhaps he was more in the Peter Sauber mould of uh, quietly going, going, and uh, you know, getting a long-term building structure in place. In fact. In his youth, he'd actually worked for the United Nations peacekeeping force in, uh, in the Gaza Strip. So maybe in a way, he was perfectly placed to be a major player in F1. But of course, his time never really came and, and it was relatively short-lived, uh, which was a shame. He was replaced by John Howard, I think, a year after in, in 2003. But I think, I think ultimately it was nothing more than other teams uh, seeing Toyota as a possible long-term threat in F1. Is that how you viewed it, Alan? Or did you get a feeling that Toyota wasn't very welcome? Yeah, I think any newcomer, a newcomer with uh, a potential of performance, clearly the established environment. And we're talking about very strong characters as well. You know, you mentioned uh, some of them there, Sam, but you just think of, you know, Frank uh, Williams at his heyday and Ron Dennis and Flavio Briatore. Uh, it's a very different style to the team bosses of today. There's no question about it. And the team bosses of today are not quiet characters, but they certainly weren't then. And uh, they were quite happy to sort of make everybody work for, you know, the their spurs. And I, I think it was just part and parcel of it. There's no question about it. There's no free ride in motorsport, and there's certainly no free ride in Formula 1. So you've got to kind of earn everything you've got, whether it be a manufacturer or not. And also it's a political game as well. It's positioning. And there was a lot of that it was just political positioning and laying down the old, uh, you know, beating your chest in some respects, but laying down some marker lines. We'll keep the controversy coming because Toyota then upsets everyone when it makes clear it doesn't believe it's bound by the end of season testing restrictions. 
The rules for existing teams are that no testing is allowed from the end of the season to December the 31st. But Toyota claims it's only bound by those rules from January the 1st, 2002, because that's the season they are joining the championship. Other teams believe they will have to play by the rules from the moment they lodge their entry, which is expected to be on the deadline of November the 15th. So there's no way they can be held to any rules in the weeks before that. Anderson says he checked this with the FIA the previous winter and was told Toyota could test until the end of 2001 regardless. He says Toyota has planned its year of testing around that, so if that changes, Toyota will be in quite big trouble. He adds, we're a new team that has not participated in a race. All the other teams have been racing for years and years, so I can't see the unfair view on this. He continues to lay it on, saying, we have to take every opportunity to ensure we can at least qualify. Sarlo, of course, is full of fighting talk on this, saying, all the other teams seem to be against us testing from October till the end of the year, but there's nothing they can do about it. He also points out, we paid a hefty fine for not partaking this year, so nobody should have any reason to complain. But maybe we should be flattered people are taking Toyota seriously. Ron Dennis says Toyota are entitled to do that, but we don't think it's particularly supportive for a new team coming into the club. And that seems to be a fairly weak argument to me. Um, and he points out that he doesn't see Toyota as a threat, which I also don't believe. So Sam, we covered quite a lot of ground there and there is more of this to come. Looking at the argument as it was at this point, which side of the fence would you have been on? Well, I mean, there's so much political posturing going on here, isn't there? I, you know, I think, I think from Toyota's point of view, there's probably still a little, well, maybe more than a little bitter taste in the mouth from the, the V12 scrappage. And then the deposit gets cashed and you can understand there been a, maybe a bit of a persecution complex kicking in there. Again, I go back to the flattery thing. If this had been 40 course or Simtech or whoever, there wouldn't have been the stink kicked up as it was. Toyota was seen as a threat, despite what Ron Dennis said. And I'm not sure everyone truly um, trusted them because it was only five years previously they had been caught red-handed cheating with those uh, admittedly ingenious turbo tricks in WRC. There was certainly a hangover from that because a lot of the team that was involved there was was still part of the F1 operation too. So so maybe that had a bit bit to play in it, even subconsciously, I don't know. Really though, that the, 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 the testing situation which has just been described was, I think the FIA and Bernie keeping putting some manners on Toyota. And you can be sure that Ron Dennis and Frank Williams and Jean Todd would have been in Mosley and, and Eccleston's ear telling them, uh, you know, not to cut the wealthy new boys any slack at all going into their, their first season of racing. Well, before we get on to the resolution of this, uh, in early September, Bernie Eccleston does chime in and he says Toyota will have to comply with the rules from the moment they lodge their entry in November Talks are scheduled for a meeting between all the team bosses at the Italian Grand Prix. Ahead of that weekend, Brunner says, The opposition worry too much. We can test day and night and Christmas Eve as well, and they will still be better because we are starting from zero. He says he expects a compromise to be reached. And that's what we get when arguably you could say common sense prevails and Toyota will be allowed to test up until it lodges its entry, which is still more than anyone else will be doing. Toyota calls this an evolution of the promises it received from the FIA in late 2000, and Anderson says they weren't in a position to argue. He says this is going to have an effect on us. How did you feel about this, Alan? Was it a fair outcome, or did it really cause Toyota problems? Was there a lot of testing 
loaded towards the end of the year initially? Well, it was quite late in the year anyway, by the time that uh, lodged the entry. And if you think on it in a practical sense, then if you're testing in Europe, then, you know, you're getting into difficult weather conditions. I think the bigger part of it was the testing's one point. But the second point is it pushes all your build programs and everything else a little bit earlier. So your cutoff time, if you do then want to go testing at all, is obviously earlier. And uh, so that is definitely a compromise. And so my memory of the argument was that it was all ongoing, but it was uh, I was quite clear there was nothing I could do about it. So it wasn't exactly something that I should think about too much. Um, but when we did go testing itself, which was with the, the new car in its original guise, um, then I think we did a two-week block at Rickard, uh, which was just mind-numbingly painful, you know, just being at the one venue, you know, for such a long period of time. But uh, it was it, that definitely wasn't your ideal way to do it because clearly you don't have any time to really develop as you're going along there. You're just trying to get the mileages and all of the numbers to correlate with everything that they had wanted to do beforehand. At least you had a quiet December. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it, it was certainly not in a quiet November, shall we put it that way? No. Now, uh, at the end of October, Alan, you were finally confirmed as a race driver, which uh, we can skip past because we've discussed how it all happened. So obviously there was quite a long wait between the team telling you and when they went public with it. But by this point, we're then building up to the launch of the 2002 car, which did happen in December 2001. So maybe you didn't have too quiet a run up to Christmas. But all the talk by now is about the expectations around Toyota. Engine project leader Luca Marmarini, well known for his work at Ferrari, says Toyota management in Japan have said they'd still be happy even if the team comes last in 2002. But he says they should be aiming for at least the midfield. He says it's brave of Toyota to risk their reputation with the F1 project. And perhaps unsurprisingly, given he's in charge of the engine side, he says the engine is good and we could have raced it this year and not been too far off the Ferraris. Uh, so based on what we were discussing earlier, that means the chassis must have been terrible. He references Ferrari again, saying Ferrari won last year because of the integration between the engine and the chassis. Toyota, with everything under the same roof, should have a similar advantage. Alan, Toyota often referenced Ferrari during this phase and its early years racing in F1. Do you think maybe as a company they saw Ferrari as the blueprint for how to do F1? Oh, Ferrari was the longest standing member in the field and uh, clearly it was one that from an iconic brand everybody knows about it and the Japanese are certainly not blind to that fact either. You know, remember part of this is also a brand building exercise as well. It's a technical exercise, but it's a brand building exercise. And so you always want to try to level it against the, the sort of next step, if you like. And uh, so I, I think there was quite a lot of references there. But it was at a time as well where Ferrari were really coming on strong. You know, it wasn't as if they were a benchmark just in terms of their sort of car company. In terms of motorsport, they were uh, really coming on with Michael. And uh, so from that perspective, I think it was quite relevant to look at them because they were the ones. Yeah, I don't think you'd set Ferrari as the template if Toyota had come in in 1992, perhaps. But in November, uh, team manager Ange Pasquale repeats Anderson's line about hoping Toyota will be able to qualify. So in other words, get inside 107%. And he then talks about the form and improvement made by Jaguar, Arrows and Minardi 
as being key to where Toyota is going to be in the pecking order in 2002. Sam, if Toyota are talking about what Jaguar, Arrows and Minardi are doing, is that aiming a little bit low for their first season? Well, they certainly didn't go full BAR spec, did they? Um, yeah, I think... No talk of winning their first race. No, uh, you know, very modest uh, predictions there. It was probably sensible, uh, maybe a little disingenuous, I don't know, but, you know, err on the side of caution rather than go full Pollock and Reynard, as I said earlier. Actually, if you look at that first season in 2002, which was the last season of of points only going up to the top six, Salo and McNish would have had, or they would have scored points on eleven occasions. So actually, I think even though it was far from an an adequate season in terms of the the the, the framework of what they had, and in terms of all the facilities and and the budget that they had, actually it wasn't a complete disaster. And and the thing that did it for them was. I think the lack of development throughout that first year. So, so going back to the to the questions, the aims and objectives. While while being a little pessimistic, I suppose probably it helped them in the short term and, and that early phase of two thousand and two, somewhat when Salah had those two sixth place finishes. I mean, they should have had that that uh, points finish in Sipang only for for a botch pit stop. So, I think they were sensible in in sort of capping their their ambition at that stage, especially knowing that that test season, the one we've just talked about, was was kind of hamstrung in a way by by some things beyond their control, but a few that they probably got wrong as well. Yeah, I think top six points sounds incredibly harsh when you're used to a decade of, of the top 10. And we will look at Toyota's first season in depth like this in the future. And who knows, maybe if Alan's enjoyed himself today, he'll come back for that one as well. But let's get into the launch of the TF-102 and pick out some highlights from the key players who were there. Anderson said, our main target for next year will be to learn to try to gain respect within the F1 paddock. We want to be a team that at the end of next year, everybody will say they came and we think they did a reasonable job. Not quite they came, they saw, they conquered. If you're thinking that someone needs to show some ambition, Anderson did add that Toyota's long-term goal was eventually to win both the Drivers' and the Constructors' World Championships, no matter how long that may take us. He rails against suggestions from rival teams that Toyota is coming in with more resources than even the biggest teams, saying that's not fair, and he says success isn't about money anyway, which I think Toyota would prove over the next decade. Brunner says the, two, <laughs> Brunner says the 2002 car has nothing left from the old car, which was designed to be a test car and nothing more, and serve that purpose well. He calls the new car more conventional but state-of-the-art, saying the test car was a little too heavy and already out of date. Toyota had felt moved to deny reports that Brunner's arrival in May was too late to change the development path for the 2002 car, which I think tallies with something Alan told us earlier. And Brunner says he started work on it in June from a clean sheet of paper. Salo says he's enjoyed seeing the project grow from zero and he's very happy with what Toyota is doing because with other teams I've seen how to do it and how not to do it. Salo doesn't subscribe to the tone of the rest of the launch saying expectations are very high from me for the next year. So Alan how impressed were you when you saw the 2002 car and can you clear one thing up for me which was that Brunner called the car conventional and state-of-the-art so which one was it? <laughs> conventionally state-of-the-art <laughs> it was uh, it, obviously there was a big step forward in terms of uh, the 
just even the visual presence of uh, the the race car relative to the test car, you could see that just by pictures. There's no question about it. There was some similarities. You know, you can maybe uh, look at some of the 2001 nose concepts and understand maybe where they came from. Um, but at the same time as well, I think it was uh, a car that came even starting late in June with a clean sheet of paper, it's still late. And it was coming from zero experience before, whereas all the other teams were coming from the race experience before. And that's quite a different thing. And so I think in that respect, uh, it was good in terms of the fact that it was a big step forward performance-wise. Reliability, the engine side was very strong, apart from in one occasion, if I remember correctly. And uh, in terms of uh, that, the big area was that the Gustav and the guys in the design just had all that time to focus purely on what they were going to produce, not purely on racing development and also on test development. So I think it was a good step forward. The, the troubles, the next set of troubles started when you needed to go racing and developing and also designing the 2003 car as well. Yeah, and that's a fresh challenge that I think a lot of new teams have talked about in the past. I remember Haas doing it recently, actually. They said designing your first car is kind of the straightforward bit because you have no other distractions. So, Sam, one last chat uh, before we wrap the episode up about the expectations, which we've looked at a few times. Everyone except Salo seemed to be on message about playing everything down. We've talked about if rival teams were perhaps a bit worried or paranoid about Toyota because of the resources. So when they were talking it down and you're looking in from the outside, do you think anyone was buying this whole story of, oh, hopefully we can qualify and maybe run round at the back? I don't think so. I, I think it's it's ultimately difficult to say, really, because it, it came from Mika. And, and Mika, I think at that stage in his career, had a, an element of blind faith in terms of you know what what they what he knew that toyota could bring to formula 1 in what he hoped was a a short term period but probably was more going to be medium to long term um i, I think he was probably mika was as we said earlier is the last person on earth to come out with any pr bull um just for the sake of it so he, he must have had an element of positivity genuine positivity that that things were going to be decent in 2002 but i think actually what probably happened is that mika had been out of racing for over a year uh, you know he'd had this test period it'd been massively disappointing he'd been injured there's a lot of difficulties you know he came back and i think he was almost willing the 2002 brunner car to be competitive and and to be something that he could fight for for podiums and, and and a lot of points with compared to the the test car obviously which was in terms of you know stacking up against what was going to come from Toyota was a bit of a anomaly anyway because it was you know it served a purpose so probably it slightly tricked Mika into thinking that he could challenge for the higher echelons of the midfield when in reality you know it could only do that very sporadically in its first season of 2002. And Alan, just lastly, there weren't really any concerns about not being able to qualify within 107%, were there? No, not really. Um, in terms of the numbers are quite clear and in terms of the, the development between the test car and the race car, because we had both of them at Ricard when we did the first, first test, you could see what the difference was. Uh, obviously, the thing you don't know is how everybody else is going to develop, but not uh, from the 107% rule, I think. That was camming and uh, trying to keep a lid on things. 
Uh, there is a point um, afterwards where I think in the race race season where expectations went a little bit wild. But at that moment in time, it was, right, where are we going to be? And certainly it wasn't going to be mid-grid forward, but whereabouts from mid-grid backwards with a certain amount of hope that it would be at the sort of mid-grid forward type of situation somewhere in that point. Yeah, and Toyota had the eighth fastest car out of the 12 teams racing in 2002. And on average, it was around two seconds off the pace in qualifying through the season. We'll leave our journey through Toyota's unique route into F1 there. The team did only finish 10th in the Constructors' Championship with a couple of points scored early in the season, which left them tied with Minardi and Arrows. So maybe that prediction we talked about earlier in the season was actually quite accurate. Um, We're not too far away, though, from the end of the second series now of Bring Back V10s. And remember that in our season finale, we'll be taking your questions about anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005. So get those questions in using the hashtag BringBackV10s on social media. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice as well. Next week, we're not stepping back too far. In fact, we're going back to one of the weekends we mentioned earlier, which is where Toyota announced its 2001 plans, and that's the Belgian Grand Prix of 2000. But we'll be focusing on what happened on track that weekend, culminating in one of the most famous moments of the rivalry between Michael Schumacher and Mika Hakkinen.